Shalom. Welcome back to Scripture Central to our last lesson on the epistles this year. These beautiful letters of John are some of the most beautiful letters of all Scripture. The message that John gives us is the discipleship and hope all come through the principles of love. And then we've also got the little book of Jude, and it's filled with warnings and exhortation. That's written by the brother of the Lord, the half-brother of Jesus. You can see here on my chart, if you've got online either the handouts, which are all available through the archives or through the Come Follow Me on bookofmormoncentral.org or scripturecentral.org, that we don't know exactly when these letters are written, probably well after Paul's third mission, when John has moved into Ephesus. Because Paul served in Ephesus for three years as the leader, and John then, we're told by history, comes and establishes the church there. And we know that he's very close to those saints in the book of Revelation. We assume that these letters of John are from John the Beloved because of some things that were said by our prophet Joseph Smith. However, they are unnamed epistles, and second and third letters are unnamed. However, they do share the same style and vocabulary, so we just assume that John uses the word elder instead of his name. And this should not surprise you. Remember, he lives in a day and age where um, you don't refer to God by his name. And in his gospel, he never refers to himself by the name of John. He never refers to Mary by the name of Mary. You know, I just feel like this is very consistent with the Johannining literature not to say his name. In fact, if he said his name, I'd be a little more worried about it than otherwise. In 1 John, this beautiful epistle is a poetic sermon. He's writing it to his spiritual children, and he's building on all the themes that came from Christ's Last Supper, and then now elaborating into the apostolic church and carrying forth with that same beautiful message. I've got a short little outline of the five verses here. He begins with a prologue, just like he does in his gospel, and then he has a message of light. And this is chapter one through chapter, halfway through chapter three. He warns against Antichrist, and he asks us to become children of God, but the whole thing is about becoming bearers of light. And then his second message is on the message of love. That's chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 5, verse 12, and that's when he talks about the need to love one another and to abide in God's love. And then his little conclusion is chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. Let's dive in now to the text. And starting in chapter 1, verse 1, make sure you look for these poetic parallels. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and have touched. That's the NIV, as is the next statement. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You know, those first three verses have all these beautiful parallels. And then he turns to this message of light. It takes over most of the next three chapters. And he has all these parallels between light and darkness and sin and forgiveness. And I'm sure you remember those back, not only from his prologue in his gospel, but all through his gospel. Remember, he introduces people like Nicodemus, who's in the dark. He comes at night. And then the woman at the well, who comes at noon with the hour of the greatest light. And she receives the message. You know, this light and darkness is a constant theme throughout his gospels and now in his epistles. And then we'll see it again in the book of Revelation. He starts out here in verse 5, We declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I would like to talk about light for a minute. It's such an interesting phenomenon. And I have a dear friend and colleague, um, and his name is Dr. Marcus Colvert. He's a, a bio 
professor at Stanford, and he has spoken on this subject of the light that Christ is begging us to carry. I'd like to read to you from him. When I think God is light, I think light is everything. Light is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's mysterious. We don't even know if it's a wave or a particle. It's probably neither. It's eternal. Who would dare to say whether it came from or where it's going? It's the fastest thing in the universe. 300 million meters per second without breaking a sweat. It warms us. It feeds us from the sun to the photosynthetic plants and the rest of the animal kingdom. It comforts us, triggering serotonin releases and sensing by our brain cells. It protects us with vitamin D. Our bodies have all kinds of ways to harvest the light, but the most spectacular is the ocular. Our eyes are absolutely amazing in what we can perceive, and yet so much of the light around us is completely undetectable or only with advanced technology. It is completely amazing. So as we go back and see God is light and his message is light, let's just broaden our perspective much larger than what we're thinking about, much larger than a light bulb or the sun, much larger than truth and light. It's also healing and our creation. There's so much to be encompassed in God is light. Starting now in verse 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And then moving ahead to verse 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, this need for forgiveness is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, he has already suffered for us. So, Daily, as President Nelson has asked us, repent. And in my life, it's hourly because my thoughts sometimes are self-centered. And I need to repent in order to maintain the companionship of the Spirit. Our prophet said in 2019, too many people consider repentance a punishment, something to be avoided except at the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, and cleanse, strengthen, and purify, and sanctify us. It was a fun little study I did a few years ago to look at the way repentance is used in the Old Testament, this way of opening up, unturning, turning about, um, rather than they word that we use from the Latin, penitence, you know, just flogging yourself. That's not what it meant in both the Old and New Testaments, um, but that's the word that was chosen by the Latin translators. But as we look at the Book of Mormon, the idea of repentance or repenting or repent is mentioned six times more often than the New Testament. And the Doctrine and Covenants is three times more often than the New Testament. This is a message for us now. It's a whole new way of thinking. It's not just stopping what we're doing wrong. It's also turning to Christ. It's, it's, our, it's our law of obedience and sacrifice and consecration. Repentance is saying, I want to do it your way. I want to give up all that takes me away from you to be able to bow before you and become your servant again. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads in the NIV, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. 
Now, he uses this wonderful little phrase of dear children or little children over and over and over again here. It's once in this gospel and it's many, many times here, seven times in this epistle. But in the Joseph Smith translation, chapter two, verse one, he changes it. If any man sin and repent, he will have an advocate with the father. Now, this word advocate, we usually think of as an attorney, a defense attorney, and it's mentioned five times in the New Testament. But the Greek word paraclete is most often translated as spirit or comforter. Four times in the gospel, John uses this in chapters 14 to 16 in the Last Supper. He's using this for the other comforter, for a role of the spirit to do your, or a role of the savior, if it's the other comforter. We also find this idea of an advocate in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 33. Joseph Smith spoke on this word in the Greek word, not the word advocate or advocate that we have here, but he's talking about it in the word as a comforter. And I mentioned this back at the Last Supper, but I'd like to remind you that this word has a very important meaning according to Joseph. So I want to read to you from what Joseph said, or at least what's written down from the scribes that were there at the meeting. Now, what is this other comforter? It is no more nor less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And even he will manifest the Father unto him, and they will take up their abode with him. And the visions of the heaven will be opened unto him, and the Lord will teach him face to face, and he may have a perfect knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This is the root of that word. So when Joseph is talking about the Lord is going to be our advocate, we are going to be to him face to face. We are going to be able to receive him. And whether that's on this side of the veil or the other, this was the promise given to the 12 at the Last Supper. I talked a lot more about it there in our discussion um, in Come Follow Me earlier. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, he begins this beautiful triplicate. Look for the patterns of threes. He talks to the children, the fathers, and the young men. And then he gives them counsel over and over again in this triplicate format. So verse 12 says, I am writing to you. And I'll read from the NIV. Children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Remember, we believe this very strongly. Children are not born in sin. And John says it right here in verse 12. And then to the fathers, he says, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, this is a dramatic departure of their culture. He's asking the fathers to love their children, to be kind to them. I have read so many documents of what parenting was like in this day and age. I've read the writings from this period of time, and they thought you had to beat children. They thought you had to never laugh with them, never play with them. But you just were very strict in their disciplining in order for them to obey. Like a horse, you just beat them to, um, to submission. But Christianity is different, and he's saying, Fathers, I want you to treat them like I've treated you. And the young men, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. This is such a great hope to our young men, to all of our youth, to all of our adults, that we can overcome the temptations of this world. And then he repeats it again, this beautiful triplet. I am writing to you children because you know the father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's what he said earlier. And the young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So look for these beautiful triplicates in the writings. We have another section, chapter two, verses 15 to 17, where he talks about overcoming worldliness. Anything that is materialistically oriented for power or money, he's trying to get the saints to leave it behind. 
He says, love not the world, neither the things which are of the world. This is a Joseph Smith translation. For all in the world that is of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life is not of the Father. And he's asking disciples to repel worldliness, to stop wasting your time on fashion and, and earning more money and money. And once you have enough for your needs, spend it for the poor. Give yourself to serving God. We next move to a section from verses 18 to 27, all in chapter 2, against the Antichrist. And he gives these warnings. He says, dear children, this is the last hour, even now. Many antichrists have come, and I'm reading from the NIV, verses 18 and 19, but their goings showed that none of them belonged to us. So people have left and, and become to, uh, fighting against the Savior, but were their deeds ever with us? Did they ever understand? Were they ever immersed in the Spirit? No. And then continuing on in verse 20, I'd like to read from the New King James Version. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, the King James uses the word unction instead of anointing, but that word is so important. Remember the word Messiah, Mashiach, is anointed, and, and Christ is anointed. In the RSV, they say anointed. In the NEB, they say, you are among the initiated. And in the Strong's Concordance, there's another translation that says, you are part of the inaugural ceremony for priests. And he talks about this also again in verse 17. So this anointing is very important, especially in light of this ascending to a higher order. We need to have this anointing to share with Christ's anointing. Verse 27 says, the anointing you received from him remains in you. So two times this anointing has power to teach when it's referred to in this text of 1 John. I'm going to just give you a few examples how the anointings initiated blessings. First of all, the anointings become protection by God. And that's mentioned in First Chronicles, in the Psalms, and in Doctrine and Covenants 121. If you want to look at my handouts, they should be all attached in the archives or to my videos, or else you can just look at the slides, and I've got them all written there too. He also talks about these anointings giving blessings as we are being taught from on high. As we gain salvation, this is in Psalms chapter 20 in the section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 80. He also talks about that we receive mercy through the anointing. And so did 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 51 in Psalms 18, verse 50. I want to read from another wonderful um, biblical scholar in BYU colleague Donald Perry in his article in the Allegory of the Olive Tree. He says, it was forbidden for souls to speak out against the anointed of the Lord. And he's asking us to do the same now. Do not speak out against the anointing of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3, talk about how children of God will become like God. And I want to read in the BLB translation, verses 1 and 2. What love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. And then skipping down to verse 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And John, of course, will be there. And he ha will have stayed and served in the earth and with those um, that have been um, worthy of his administration ever since the time of the Lord. Verse 3 says, Every man, or it meant every human at that time, that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, 
And I also love another translation. I don't usually like this translation for an accuracy, but I like the way it sounds. It's the common English version. This hope makes us keep ourselves holy. You know, this hope of coming into Christ encourages us to focus on becoming holy, to focus on never offending the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 4 to 10, then refers to avoiding sin. He starts out now in verse 7 and 8 with the Joseph Smith translation. And he says again, little children, let no man deceive you. He doeth righteousness is righteous. And he that continue in sin is of the devil. Okay, there's two significant changes here in the Joseph Smith translation. The first one is you don't commit sin, you're of the devil, but you remain in sin. We commit sin because we're mortal, but we can repent. We can turn and say we're sorry. And the faster we say we're sorry, the better. I just feel like it's not a problem with messing up. It's a problem with staying in that state. We've got to change. And three times, Joseph Smith translation changes this word here from continuing in sin to the idea of committing sin. I also want to familiarize you with the word sin. This isn't part of the Joseph Smith translation. This is just 27 times in the New Testament. What does it mean? And how can we apply it in our lives now? Let's go back to the Greek translation where it's either a noun or a verb, and it means you miss the mark. Hence, you feel guilt or sin. It's a fault or failure. It's an ethical sense. It's a sinful deed. So it's a very, very broad spectrum, but it's anything that takes us from God. It doesn't have to be large. It can be a thought. It can be self-centered behaviors. It can be putting yourself above someone else. Let's continue on now with the second half of this beautiful first John, where he talks about the message of love. This is the message that he heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in verse 13, he says, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters. I'm reading from the NIV. That's how you can tell because it's got the sisters in there. And that's what it was in the Greek, you know. If the world hates you, so don't be surprised if you're getting attacked by all sides. Don't be surprised if, if people on social media have more to say from the antis than those of us that are trying to defend the faith and defend our prophet and defend our God. Don't be surprised. Satan's working overtime. Just hold on. He says in verse 15, again in the NIV, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Now that is a powerful statement. But I think John is building from the messages that the Lord gave back at the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when he says, he who looketh upon a woman is the same lustfully and has committed adultery in his mind and in his heart is already guilty of it. And I think this is where this is coming from. If we harbor hate and we can't forgive someone, and we harbor ideas about getting rid of them, it's, it's the same as doing it. So don't, don't go through those areas. Stop it. Stop it. We can control our thoughts and our mind. We can control them through repentance. We can control them through coming unto Christ. It might not be possible on our own, but we are to share our yoke with our Savior and with God. All things are possible. I believe this. I believe in a God of miracles. Verse 23, I'd like to read in the New King James Version. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. When I think of what is the law of the gospel, to me, this is a synthesis of it right here. We have to believe in the name of our Savior and use that name sacredly 
and realize who the Savior is and what is the most important part of his redemption. It is his saving ordinance of the atonement. And when we focus on that, we receive a forgiveness of our sins. We receive a redemption and we are made whole. And then we are in a position once we're made whole to go and bless other people and to love one another as he loved us. Verse 24 reads again in the New King James Version, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, that's capital H for the Lord. And by this, we know that the Lord, he, capital H, abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, John had an even greater outpouring of it because he's in a specialized state. But we have the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have been blessed with the cleansing power of the spirit. And if you haven't felt the spirit, get on your knees and pray for it. I feel like repentance is the fastest way I can feel the spirit. And I ask the Lord to open my mind to more ways that I can repent. But sometimes we live in a day and age where mental health takes over and you are not mentally unhealthy because of sin, but sometimes it blocks our feeling of the spirit. It blocked it from Job. It blocked it sometimes from President Kimball and, and Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail. It's going to block it from all of us. Even our Savior did not feel the Lord's love at some times. So even though repentance is a great place to start, it doesn't mean it's causal. If you don't feel the Spirit, just hang in there and do the very best you can, and you will be rewarded in time. Before we dive into these verses, I just want to remind you that in the Restoration, this was one of Joseph Smith's favorite topics. In fact, his, his nephew, um, the youngest member of the Quorum of the Twelve, George A. Smith, said of all the topics that Joseph spoke on, you know, one of his favorites was the gifts of the Spirit, and the one he spoke most often on was the seeking the gift of discernment. And the first thing the Lord reveals to the earliest sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about the Spirit and receiving it say, you have to believe. You have to believe in your mind and in your heart. And you'll recognize the spirit of prophecy if you study it out because it's going to lead to do good. It's going to foster love. It's going to foster selfless thoughts. And Elder Rasband taught us recently, it'll be the first thoughts that come to your mind. And then the adversary will try to talk you out of it. But if you're going by what logically comes second, you're missing the promptings that came first. In verse one, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then between verse one and verse three, we have this beautiful little chiasmus here. And I've got it written out in the BLB translation. He says in verse one, there are false prophets who have gone out into the world. And then in verse two, but the spirit of God is coming. And then in the end of verse two, it says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ having come into the flesh is of God. And then it's repeated in the contrary in verse three, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. As the chiasmus comes out, they repeat each other in the opposite. So verse three at the end says, this is that of the antichrist. And then he ends and now is already in the world. He's referring to the Antichrist. So we come in with the spirit and we leave with the Antichrist, but they're parallel things. It's just beautiful. Anytime you see a lot of repetition, look, look for a chiastic structure, not only in the Book of Mormon, but in the New Testament as well. Chapter four, verses seven through 21, now talk about loving each other and abiding in God's love. It reads in the NIV, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. 
And then skipping ahead to verse 8, whoever does not believe does not know God because God is love. And this whole section on love is saturated with this encouragement. I'll read verses 9 and 10 in the BSB. This is how God's love was revealed. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, he just cannot leave this. Remember, who is the only apostle at the cross? It is John. He believes this. He was there in Gethsemane. He may have been sleeping for part of it, but he was there. He even followed Jesus into Caiaphas's palace. You know, he was there. He's begging us to apply this into our lives as an eyewitness. Verse 12, I'd like to read from the JST. No man hath seen God at any time except them who believe. And if we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. This is a very important change. But in verse 13, he's talking now about how the Spirit can dwell in us. And I'd like to read it from the NIV. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us, because he's given of us his Spirit. And that great gift has been restored. You know, the prophet Joseph told United States President Martin Van Buren, the difference between our church and others is the gift of the Holy Ghost and all else is because of this, the priesthood authority, the keys, everything else works through the gift of the Holy Ghost is what he told Hiram in a letter written December of early December of 1839. Continuing on to verse 16, I'd like to read this in beautiful poetic fashion that's written out in the NIV chapter four still. God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Make sure every day in your prayers you ask to feel God's love. And remember from the vision of the tree of life in the Book of Mormon, to feel God's love, we have to hold on to the iron rod, which is the word of God. You know, it, it, it's, it's the scriptures. If you want to feel loved, immerse yourself in the scriptures, immerse yourself in conference reports and plead for it from our Savior and you will receive it. Chapter four, verse 20, also in the NIV reads, whoever claims to love God and hates his brother or sister is a liar. Now, this is very telling, isn't it? If we can say we love God, but we have hard feelings, um, we need to look a little deeper in. Chapter five now talks about overcoming the world. And I'd like to read in verse two and three from the New King James Version. When we love God, that's verse two. And then verse three says, his commandments are not burdensome. And that is the way I feel. His commandments are a joy. They're a blessing. They're a gift. It's better than vitamin C when you have a cold or vitamin D when when you need some sunshine. You know, I just feel like his Commandments are blessings to us. Chapter 5, verse 6 through 21, then turns to talk about his testimony, his witness of the Son of God. I'll skip around from verse 6, 7, and 8 in NIV. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So he's not just talking about Spirit, water, and blood. Look at these things symbolically. Who testifies? We learn by our mind and our heart. We learn through Christ's atonement. We learn through the Spirit. We learn through the 
ordinances of baptism and the cleansing. These are beautiful verses, but I hope that you also recognize these in their parallels, water, blood, and spirit with our mortal birth, our immortal birth, and then the restoration scriptures that we have in Moses chapter six. This is the chapter where Enoch is recording Adam's words. And this is all part of the Joseph Smith translation of those first few chapters of Genesis. But I have this on my chart all paralleled out and it's just beautiful because he's telling us we need to receive the water. Remember in our mortal birth, the fetus grows in the sack of, of water. And then as we are reborn in the kingdom of God, we need to be baptized by immersion. Adam explains this, but it's recorded in the book of Moses, chapter 6, verse 58 to 60, that mortals have been born into the world by water and blood and the spirit. And to be born again into the kingdom of heaven, we also need water and spirit and cleansed by the blood of Christ. By the water, ye keep them commandments, and by the blood, ye are sanctified. So the blood is also very present in mortal birth. I used to work in, in labor and delivery as a nurse, and I've had many births myself that I know that blood is a part of that and is part of the rebirth. It's only when we receive the redeeming blood of our Savior that we can be cleansed. And then the spirit, of course, when we're born, our spirit enters into our body. Actually, before we're born, we're told that the spirit enters the body at quickening. This is a first presidency letter um, down in from President Joseph F. Smith in 1921 that says, no, 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 the spirit enters the body when it's still in utero, you know, very, very early, very, very early, the spirit enters that body. We are the literal offspring of God as it joins our mortal body. And then at the rebirth, the cleansing power of the spirit purifies us so that we can dwell with God again. Moving on now to verse nine, I'd like to read this beautiful verse in the NIV. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater. So he said, I'm grateful that I can testify to you. I'm glad to be writing this letter, but I hope you receive a witness of the Spirit. I hope you receive God's witness. And in verse 19 of this, also chapter five, he said, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And poor John, you know, not only does he have the, the vision that we now have in the book of Revelation, but he has to live through all this pain and agony. And that's how he ends that beautiful book of First John. The second epistle is a lot shorter. It's just one chapter. And Eusebius, this Christian historian, um, he was writing from Caesarea. He said, the church at Ephesus was founded by Paul, but John remained there till Trajan's time. Now, Trajan served from 98 till 117 AD. So this is after the Isle of Patmos. John goes back to Ephesus. So he was there before and after. Eusebius says, so she is a true witness of what the apostles taught. She would be the church at Ephesus during this time. If we can find writings from Ephesus at this time, we can claim them as being protected by John, the apostle. Irenaeus also wrote about this in 180 AD, and he says, of all the clergy who's in Asia, remember this is the area of Turkey, John, the Lord's disciple, testified that John taught the truth to them that he remaineth with them till Tradian's time. So we have two witnesses that are very, very early that John was there all the way through Tradian. 
Here's a brief outline of this second epistle of John. He starts out with his greetings for just the first three verses. And then from verse four to 11, he talks about walking in true doctrines and love. And then he gives his final greeting. But the whole message of it is not just walking, but it's your whole thought and mind and your actions and every particle, every cell in your body is to be focused on love. He says in verse one, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, this is very interesting. Who is the elder? Well, we talked about that at the beginning. I think it's John the Beloved um, because of the text and the similarities. But who is the elect lady? Is it Mary? We're told that he was to take care of Mary. And that supposedly, according to Eusebius and others, Mary came with him. Is it his wife? Or could the elect lady be the church? Because he talks about the elect lady's sister in a context as if he was talking about congregations. You know, in section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith refers to Emma as the elect lady. And then when they organize the Relief Society, he says, this was foreordained because you were called the elect lady. And it meant that you were going to be elected to this office as president of the Relief Society. Um, so very interesting about this. Uh, also, the idea of the church being married to Jesus, this idea of the bride and the bridegroom, saturated the Old Testament. God was always married to either Jerusalem or Zion. And we have in the New Testament similar images of the bridegroom being Jesus, not only in the, like the parable of the ten virgins, but look at the book of Revelation. And the bride is the church and the bridegroom is Christ. Remember, it says in chapter 19 that Christ will be able to come again as soon as the bride has made herself ready. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? I also want to talk about this idea of loving in truth. John has it mentioned four times. First John and third John just each mentioned it once, but it's an idea that is very consistent here. And he says, I will tell you the truth over a hundred times in the Gospel of John and throughout the other writings. Chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 John begins, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very customary greeting. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, but John adds this idea of truth and love, as I just mentioned. And it's really interesting to see the connection of that. We can feel God's love more when we receive more of his truth. Starting now in verse four, I'm going to read from the BSB. I was overjoyed to find some of you, your children walking in the truth, just as the father has commanded us. This is another reason why I think the elect lady is the church, because he's saying your children, but it might've been his wife. I don't know. But then why would it be your children? I, I, anyway, you get the message. It's a little tricky here. But it's a beautiful image that he's asking us to follow in the commandments, even during times of persecution. And in verse 8, in the NIV, it reads, Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for. So much effort has been gone into maintaining pure doctrine. And he's begging them not to hear the false doctrine. Going on, I'm going to continue reading in the NIV from verses 8 to verse 10. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ, does not have God. And then in verse 10, do not take them into your house or welcome them. He's begging them to use the gift of discernment between those that are teaching falsehoods and those that are teaching accurate doctrine. And I am so grateful that we have general conference, that we have a canon, that we have things that we can base things on and judge things against. And then, of course, we have the spirit of discernment as well. He then closes up his letter. 
It's just short and sweet. And he says in verse 12, I'm going to read from the NIV, continue on to 13. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. So he closes up the letter and we begin the next one. The third epistle of John is written to a dear friend, Gaius. And there are three different people with that name in the New Testament. I've got them all listed in my handout if you'd like to go back and get it. But now starting with the text of this third epistle, he says the elder, just like he did in this second epistle. And I'm going to read from the NIV. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. He's going to now thank Gaius for his great hospitality. And then he's going to give some warnings not to follow the bad example before he closes up. So verse 2 Starting in the New King James Version, he uses his, one of his favorite words, beloved. I mentioned before, it's mentioned 10 times. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I think this is so important. Sometimes our prayers are more, I need, I want, um, rather than my soul needs, my soul wants. May we focus on eternal things with our time, talents, and energy. Have your vacation eternally based rather than a bucket list based. Have your spare time. Have every minute of your day eternally based. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's probably one of the most well-cited verses in this entire epistle. But remember the word walk in that day and age referred to how you're conducting your lives. It's not just whether you're a, a runner or if you're in a wheelchair that it doesn't apply to you. It's talking about your life. And then he thanks Gaius for his hospitality. And this is in verses 5 through 8. I want to skip ahead to verse 7 through 8 in the BSB. I love this. For they went out on behalf of the name, and that's capitalized, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in addition to thanking Gaius for his hospitality, he's saying, I want all of you to be supporting people like Gaius who are supporting the name of Jesus Christ, who are supporting the name of our Savior. He then says, I want to warn you about two people. And he said, I'm writing you because I don't know if you're seeing these, the differences. We've got one person who's good and one person who's bad. I'll start with verse 9 in the NIV, and it goes on through verse 10. I wrote to the church, but Diophatries, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Now, Diophatries was an insubordinate, very ambitious official in the church. We don't know a lot about him except for the fact that he goes to this local congregation with Gaius. And John wants to alert him of these three problems. Not only is he prideful, he doesn't take counsel, but he's ignoring John's authority and he's casting out good members. So in verse 11, he's warning Gaius. He calls him beloved. Follow not that which is evil. And then skipping down a little bit. He that doeth good is of God. And he that doeth evil hath not seen God. And I also say not seen a witness of God. You know, has not had that witness in his spirit or else you'd have the gift of discernment here. And now he wants to point out a fellow member who is a good man, Demetrius. Demetrius, in verse 12 in the NIV says, is well spoken of by everyone. And even by the truth itself, we also speak well of him. 
Now, if you want to read more on Demetrius, his name is mentioned. I don't know if it's the same person, but he's mentioned in Colossians 4.14, 14, Philemon 1.24, Acts 19.24, if we're going to think he has a nickname, which usually happens. And possibly he's the one who's going to carry this letter to Gaius. And so he's giving him a little bit of forewarning. He then concludes the letter in verse 13 to 14. I had many things to write, but I trust I shall shortly see thee and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee and greet thy friends by name. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul used to always say, greet thy friends with the holy kiss or Joseph changed it a little bit in the Joseph Smith translation. But I love the way he does it. Greet thy friends by name. Learn someone's name. The next book of scripture is Jude. And this is a powerful message that fits in so nicely to our day and age. The name Jude, Yehuda or Judah, is also Judas, the same Greek versus the Hebrew. There are three different Judes mentioned in the New Testament, but this one is Jesus's little half-brother. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 14, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. I'd like to give you the outline of this beautiful little one-chapter book. He opens with his blessing and exhortation. And then from verses 4 to 16, he talks about crimes and punishments. And everything here, again, is in triplets. He then has three charges against the deceivers and then three paradigms of punishments. And then again, three charges and three prophesies and more charges. And, and then he gives multiple metaphors of charges, but everything are in these triplicates. And then in verse 17 to 23, he gives warnings and exhortations of faith and love. And then he gives a few prophecies to the wicked in verses 17 to 19. And then he ends with a great exhortation to build faith, to pray more, to seek the Spirit more, and his benediction. Let's start with chapter 1, verse 1 in the Joseph Smith translation. Jude, a servant of God, called of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them who are sanctified, of the Father and preserved by Jesus Christ. The title God the Father is mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. I think this is one of the reasons why so many early American Christians debated the idea of the Trinity. In fact, it was the second most common topic debated over a 50-year period in the religious circles of the Second Great Awakening because it's not biblical and it doesn't fit into the biblical text. And so it was fought, it was fought, um, but somehow it's back into um, behavior and of the common vernacular again. But we do not believe that they were one. We believe they're one in purpose and that the Father and the Son were separate. And John's gospel is a beautiful example of this. You might be confused as to why I'm not referring to this James as James, the brother of John the Beloved. Well, we don't have any record of them having a Judah, a James and a John. The place where Judah is, the brother of James, why doesn't he call himself the brother of Jesus? Probably out of humility. But I'm so touched that he says, I was called of Jesus Christ. Remember, James and Judah, his little brother, did not follow him during his ministry. So this is really powerful that they received this call afterward. I'd like to read in verse 3 from the NIV. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. So he said, I wanted to talk to you about salvation, about the next word, world, but I realized from the Spirit that I have got to talk about you fighting for your faith. I need more people defending the faith. This is a time of great persecution and the deceivers are coming in. The apostasy is in full scope. And he's talking about these 
wicked people who are perverting the way. I'll read from the NIV in verse four. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. I use the image here of these are wolves in sheep's clothing. Verse five continues, and I'd like to read from the BSB. Although you are fully aware of this, I want to remind you that after Jesus had delivered his people out of the land of Egypt, he destroyed those who did not believe. You know, not only during the 10 plagues are they mainly destroyed, but the whole army then is taken out. I want to just remind you that Jude is writing to Jewish converts. Every example is from the Old Testament. He doesn't give any kind of Greek or Roman um, ideology or messages here. Everything is going back to that beautiful text. He says in verse 6, Angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of that great day. This is where we get the word first estate. Now, other translations use the other ways, but the King James actually uses this here. And this becomes a word in the restoration. We find it all over restoration vocabulary. The first estate was in our pre-mortal life. We now live in our second estate. And when um, we are resurrected, we will be living in our third estate. And this is a beautiful vernacular to realize the scope of the plan of salvation of our Father in heaven. When Joseph Smith is reading this, he's introduced to this vocabulary, and he was inspired to talk more about it. And so we read in one of his sermons in Nauvoo, the spirits of the eternal world are like the spirits in this world. And when those who come into this world and receive tabernacles, then died and again have risen and received glorious bodies, they again will ascend over the spirits who have received no bodies or kept not their first estate like the devil. This punishment of the devil was that he should not have a habitation like men. The devil's retaliation is that he comes into this world and binds up men's bodies and occupies them himself. This is why we need to use the gift of casting out devils. This is a gift of the Spirit that is part of given to the restoration. It was the first miracle that Joseph performed in the restoration was casting out a devil. And we see many of them in the New Testament as well. Verse 7, I'd like to read in the NIV, again tells a story from the Old Testament. This one from Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversions. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, remember, um, eternal is another name for God. So it's not always, always, always being in burning flames. It's God's cleansing, God's purification. Do you remember back in 2004? This is a long time to remember, but I remember this. President Boyd K. Packer was speaking in general conference, and he said, nothing happened in Sodom and Gomorrah which exceeds in wickedness and depravity that which surrounds us now. Then these things were localized, and now they are spread across the world, and they are among us. That was 2004. Tragic the way we are immersed in things of wickedness in our world. We have got to ha get the bride ready, get the church ready, so we can stop the calamities of the last days. I'd like to move on to verse 9 now, where he talks about this very interesting story. It's not in the Old Testament that we had, but remember, the Old Testament wasn't canonized until the 4th century. They began, you know, weeding out different things, but they didn't close the canon. And so some of this apocryphal literature was included in their stories. And so Jude tells us of one of these. Verse 9 reads in the NIV, 
Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to contend him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What is this story? Michael is the premortal Adam, or Adam not in his angelic state, and he's fighting over a body? Well, this is all very interesting because in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood, Joseph received a revelation to clarify this. This ancient text is called the Assumption of Moses. And it talks about these angelic being of Michael and the devil trying to say, I get Moses's body. He needs to die because he killed the Egyptian. And the archangel saying, no, he will be translated. You will not get his body. He is not going to taste death because he did what he was commanded to do by God. And he has repented for all the sins he committed. Hence, he can arise through the blood of the Lord and be forgiven. And we know that that is the case because we read about it in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 84, verse 25, refers to Moses being translated. He did not taste death because he had to be on the Mount of Transfiguration to give the keys to not only our Savior, but to Peter, James, and John, and then came again in a translated state in the Kirtland Temple on Easter to Joseph Smith and when those keys were restored in section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Verses 10 through 11 then go through more Old Testament stories. We've got stories about Cain from Genesis 4, Balaam and Balak. Do you remember those with the talking donkey in Numbers 22? And Korath. Now, this story isn't quite as well known. It's in Numbers chapter 16. And it's when this man named Korah, he rebelled against Moses. And he wanted to use his authority to instigate a rebellion against Moses. Jude then starts talking about Enoch. But it's a change of topic. He's still talking about these, all these Old Testament examples, but now he wants to talk about the prophecies of punishment. He says in verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. And I'm going to skip ahead to verse 15 here. And all the ungodly deeds. Now, the word Enoch is mentioned 11 times in the Bible. Not very many at all. And that includes this New Testament here. We've got it in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, and then Luke chapter 3, Hebrews 11, and Jude chapter 1. That's it. But we have other sources of Enoch now. Um, first, Joseph Smith restored Enoch's record in the Joseph Smith translation of Moses, which we refer to as the books of Moses, chapters 6 and 7. And we also have... Um, after Joseph Smith did that translation, when they dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nagamati Scrolls, other apocalyptic literature from the time, we find other books that are claimed to talk about Enoch. One of them is the Slavic Enoch. We refer to that as Second Enoch. And then we have a Third Enoch, which is an apocryphal Enoch that comes out in 1873. So Jude is reciting words from this First Enoch, but all of them collaborate a little bit of the story. And we see so much overlap with Joseph Smith. This is just a bullet, exactly right. Um, Pearl Great Price, the book of Moses is spot on. And then verses 17 to 19 talk about the prophecies of the wicked. He says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. And then he skips ahead to verse 18. In the last times, there will be scoffers. And that is where we are living now. And now moving on to verse 20, where he gives this beautiful exhortation to build their faith and their prayers. I'll read from the NIV in 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for, and then it goes on to say eternal life. It's not for the second coming. That's, I feel how I am right now. I need to live as if I were um, hoping to see the Lord's second coming. But even if it doesn't happen in my day and age, I will be hoping to see him in eternal life. The book of Jude is a powerful text for our day and age. The epistles are wonderful texts. And our New Testament closes with the apocryphal literature in the book of Revelation. And I look forward to studying that with you next week. It is a powerful book for our day and age. I want to testify with Jude and with Paul that the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring us peace and love. And I leave this with you in the name of our Savior. Amen.